You're listening to the New Century Multiverse. Arlington Remastered. Part 3 Point of No Return. Chapter 18 The Speaker Washington Post, Evening Edition, Front Page Written by Raven District of Columbia, March 7th, 1883 The trial of police officers Mark Wilkie, Cleavon Bale, Tyler Boyd, and Wade McGinley ended at noon today. A week ago they were taken into custody by their colleagues following their actions at a brutal street altercation on the night of March 1st. Fifteen police officers had been assembled to put an end to a brawl that had broken out among two dozen Washington citizens in the late evening. What made the actions of these four so contentious was the singling out of the black individuals among the crowd, whom eyewitnesses report were thrown to the ground, stamped upon, and beaten with cudgels, resulting in seven deaths, all black men. Michael P. Anderson, Jamal Barnes, William Barnes, Delmar Harrison, Troy Kelly, Isaiah Peace, and Melvin Sweeney. This obvious discrimination being cheered on by some of the assembled crowd drew ire from others. The officers were arrested and taken away in the riot subdued, allowing for the living to then tend to their wounded and their dead. Over the past few days of the trial, which I've been covering in this very paper, Many allegations have been brought forward, and many questions asked. Was this behavior excessive? Considering the numbers, could this be construed as self-defense? Was there apparently specific intentions to harm and murder blacks, a gross mishandling of their trusted station, as protectors of all this city's people? Looking back at their records and identifying many similar cases of Negroes killed, is there any question of deeply rooted prejudice? As I write this, I am sat on a rooftop across from City Hall. A carriage is waiting for the four police officers out front, and beyond the carriage moves a living mass of Washington citizens. The morass is rippling with increasingly louder shouts of aggression. A contingent of whom I see before me are here to protest on behalf of those who have suffered brutally at the fists and sticks of men like this. Another, overwhelmingly large group is here to actively support the officers on trial and a lot of those in the middle are here because they are angry and curious. There are no words I could write that would adequately summarize the myriad complexities of the manifold reasons these people have to be so angry. Though the man himself does not appear to be present, I glimpse the unmistakable gray armbands of the Fisher Gang within the Horde. Sticks, bricks, bottles, knives, and a pistol or ten are being uncovered and passed around. Other gang members are on show. The bruisers, the scalps, the lead coffins, the East Angels. They keep to their isolated gaggles, separated by non-affiliated citizens. But looks are being cast across the spaces in between. The spark of madness flashes about the throng with fresh surges of raw upheaval. This is a pot that has boiled for too long, and a burning smell is in the air. At the precise moment the door is open, a horn sounds, 
and a procession of horse-borne figures come galloping down Indiana Avenue. They are wearing crimson robes and hoods, and carry sabers, guns, and long poles with burning crosses at the end. The crowd reel back out of the way, and the horses mount the grassy slope in front of the lines of police guarding the District of Columbia Courthouse, holding the people at bay with their flaming lances. From the open door, the four officers emerge with a police escort, proceed to walk to their coach unmolested. This is not an accidental nor coincidental combination of elements. Beyond a doubt, we are looking at a public statement. The verdict is not guilty, and the crowd goes wild. From the Journal of Major Frank Butler, Washington, District of Columbia, March 7th, 1883. Several minutes earlier, our carriage proceeded through the streets to central D.C. Sarah sat behind me, her face nurturing a brittle smile. Lee sat across from her, calmly, hands folded in her lap. Beside her sat Thomas, his head propped up on a hand that masked his mouth and framed his wide, staring eyes. He did not look like he had slept since receiving the news last night from Mr. Roach, who was radiating tension, to the point where we had given up on even attempting small talk. The streets we passed by were filled with hurrying people who took no notice of our carriage. All were heading in the same direction as us. My mind was on the ten bullets in my pistols. It is customary for safety with the single-action cold peacemaker to keep one chamber empty. Now, all I could think of was what sudden, unexpected tragedy those two bullets might prevent. I think we can cross Miles Stillwell off the list. I saw him after Riley, and he was maybe my least favorite so far. Do you know what he wanted to do? What he's going to run for president on? Nobody? He wants to build a wall around Washington. Says it will keep out Wendigos, Catholics, and foreign hordes. He was deep into the Know Nothing movement back in the 50s. Very much a subscriber to nativism. I suppose there wasn't much point illuminating him on the dictionary definition of native. There wasn't much point saying anything at all. He was quite, quite mad. I just let him run his course until he got tired. He put in an order for one million clay bricks and our finest Protestant workers to assemble them. I told him we don't accept old treasury notes, but he's still convinced he's worth everything he used to be. Mean, ignorant old bastards like that are a dying breed. Well, they're not dying fast enough. It speaks. Still, they're expiring from the earth quicker than we're moving. Tell the driver to ring the bell and push through the crowd. I could get out and walk faster than this. There's a lot of activity in the streets. We have to take it slow. Keep a low profile. You don't want to run someone down just because of impatience. Honestly, Sarah, this parade of the incompetent, the deluded, and the megalomaniacal we've been speaking with. What the hell has Grant got us doing? I think there's a twofold operation going on here. These people on our lists may seem largely ill-suited to the task from our point of view, but this has been a great excuse to get acquainted with what we're up against on a personal level. Well, I've had enough. That's why we're going straight to my number one guy. He's going to decline. He'll allow me to plead our case. I believe it's worth our time at least asking. Otherwise, nothing would convince me to go driving through this procession of fucking bovine idiots. 
We're already late. We're gonna miss him entirely at this rate. Fucking move! Shh. Calm down. We shouldn't be out here. Would you like me to ask the driver to turn us around? No. Keep going. We alighted outside the building that was formerly St. Patrick's Church and hurried in together. We heard his voice through the doorway before we saw anything else, and as we entered and stood near the back of the hall, I found myself surveying a gathering of people of all colors. At the head, stood up behind a lectern, his voice booming out and echoing off the walls, stood Frederick Douglass. I glanced at Thomas, whose eyes were fixed on the man, and as he continued the speech he was already deep into, I saw immediately why this was Arlington's choice. When one uses the word tyrant, the mind goes to the men at the upper echelons of society. The presumption stands that only those who control the flow of nations can wear this moniker. One imagines a bewigged despot sat upon an opulent throne, crushing hopes and dreams with a wave of his well-manicured hand. A child in soft, velvety clothing or a bully with the splendid fortune to possess blue blood and divine appointment. Or perhaps, a general, taken control by force, or the grand businessman controlling thousands of lives with the stroke of a pen, all the most powerful and respected of our leaders. But this is fallacy. Tyranny can exist in the heart of any man or woman to whom power is granted. And this is down to the commonality of the heart which we share as a species. A propensity to exhibit both great strength and appalling weakness. Ask yourself, are we not all men beneath the skin? Made of the same bone and muscle? If somehow these policemen had been Negroes appointed to the position of public guardian, and had they gone straight for white men to strike down, using the excuse of a public affray to commit murder, would there be any doubt of their clear racial bias? Would this even have reached the prestige of a trial? Would the elders of this city, wise men to be sure, be stroking their beards and deliberating for days to ascertain whether a duality of standard was being exhibited? Or would black policemen simply have been torn asunder by an enraged mob? These men are being tried by the highest court in the land held to account in front of all reunified state citizens. Just punishment must be visited, it must be public, and it must be commensurate with the severity of their crimes. These men have killed, yes, and they have done so with malicious intent, borne up by a sense that the laws of our land do not apply to the lawbringers. This is vile hypocrisy. This is an affront to the very wording of our Declaration of Independence. Now, more than at any point in history, we can look to the fabric of our society and see the manifest evidential proof that all men and all women are indeed created equal. At this, his eye fell on us at the back. He did not miss a beat as he spoke. Thomas's fist was pressed to his mouth as he locked eyes with the orator. The black man sits down with the white to craft our munitions. They work the fields side by side to grow our food. They march the ruined battlefields of our cities together as a military unit. They hold positions of office, 
coordinating our futures, and indeed, we shall shortly be voting on our next president together. We achieved this in just a few short years. This was our decision when we stepped up collectively to survive. And yet, it is not a resounding victory. We have not passed a boundary out of ignorance and hate to which there is mercifully no return. This fragile balance rests upon the goodwill of those who support it. There is obscene opposition to this. There is a desperate, fearful desire to return to inequality, the extent of which allows some to convince themselves that they are better than others, more equal in the eyes of a benevolent God. I speak now to all who have lent an ear with a view to laying to rest the grotesquerie of human culture. Do not accept this mindset in your fellow man. Do not lie down and allow them to trample you with their loathing. Do not allow the American people to be voiced by the most ignorant, the most blinded, the most aggressive. To see the floor to their intolerance, their prejudice, is as though you have appointed them our spokesman. Not with your actions, but with the lack of them. I say plant your feet. I say square your shoulders. I say push back. I say refuse to accept the meager portion of the world they would endow upon us, if any. It is a dangerous thing to consider oneself wholly morally correct and possessed of unimpeachable judgment. But we can at least be sure of this. The tyranny of men resides not in their social position, but in their manifest mistreatment of those they consider lesser beings. If they lay a hand on you, attempt to make you feel you are lowly, you snatch that hand away with absolute certainty. For the freedom of all men from tyranny is a moral right. There was a thunderous applause, and as the congregation were ushered from the church, Thomas waited until the hall was empty and we were alone, before striding up the faded, threadbare carpet running down the center of the pews to greet his mentor. Frederick. Thomas. That was powerful, moving, inspiring stuff. You have not lost your touch. I don't need my ass polished, Thomas. There's a revolution in the air today. I'm just on damage control, same as you. So one friend to another, what do you want? I want you for president. The position of vice president is open right now. You can take it. That puts you in place. That gets people thinking of you as presidential material. Oh. I want you to say yes to this. We need the best leader, and it's you. Well, I'm sorry, but I disagree. And I can't. I feel like you haven't even considered this. You answered far too quickly. It's not the first time I've been asked, and I was nominated as vice president in 72. Then they asked if I actually wanted to be nominated. I have no doubt I would make many happy if I took the highest office. But I fear the outcry and the bloody conflict that would follow the supreme unlikelihood of my winning the popular vote would not be worth the historical precedent. 
I'm happy to keep cultivating the inspiration from my posts, but I'm an old man, Thomas. I'm older than Grant. This country needs a young, dynamic, confident leader. What I just heard back there was from a confident man. I have confidence in my abilities. It's my approach, and its usefulness to the American public that I question. Your approach? Thomas, I'm an activist. I thrive on opposition. I see injustice, and it befits my disposition to stand against that. My entire public career is founded upon anger, indignation, protest, agitation. I push against the unacceptable status quo. I can't be the status quo. And I can't be the leader you want. I'm sorry. You have to find someone able to deal in more than simply fire. That is, if you want a balanced leader. Is this about Anna? What about her? You're still in mourning. Thomas. Alright, I think we're done for today. Sergeant Powell, if you could have your men clear a safe path to my coach. Yes, Mr. Douglas. With the greatest of respects, Frederick. Duty to your people must come before personal attachment. What is wrong with you? Our need is dire. Grief cannot stand in the way of progress. That's very easy to say when- When what? One has not experienced the greatest of losses yet. Do you think I find this simple? That I wake every day thrilled at the prospect of millions of people whose lives depend upon the farthest reaches of my decisions. Thomas! I have to push past it every single time. I must switch off more about myself than I leave on. It's not about me and it never was. It's about having the right mind in the right place. Frederick, I'm so sorry. Thomas and I have been working very hard to get the right man into this station. I apologize for his candor and the discomfort this has clearly entailed. No. He may have something there regarding my reasoning. In truth, I've been in the grip of a powerful melancholy without her. And as much as I would cling to my ideals, you are right. There is work afoot. Visit with me tomorrow. This is not the place to discuss the logistics. I do not want the role, nor do I think I would be the choice of the people. But it is they that I must focus on. Thank you for seeing sense. I shall thank you not to mention my wife ever again, unless I do. It was not planned. I apologize. The sounds of screaming could be heard on the wind. The road outside was flocked with people milling about in all directions. The crack of gunshots rang out. Thomas's brow furrowed visibly as Mr. Douglas retrieved and inspected a pocket watch. Noon. I assume the verdict is in. Raven continued. As the front of the crowd reaches uproar, and swarms in on the clansmen. The men on horseback visibly panic, launching their mounts towards the road, only to be swallowed up in the wave of thrashing bodies and equine screams. The melee behind the front lines turns inwards, and everyone is fighting those next to them. 
Patches of color clash as the storm hits this living, heaving sea. Oil lamps are flung towards the windows of the courthouse. The police close in and push back the crowd. The coach with the four cops in it is surrounded and unable to move. It is at this time that some, down on the ground, become aware of the Wendigos. They come from every angle, swarming in with eerie coordination. Immediately, there are wrongs stacked upon wrongs. These creatures should not be here. The surrounding lands have been cleared. The nearest should be in Baltimore. Far worse, though, is that for all we know of them, they do not behave like this. They seek self-preservation and will hide in the shadows and pounce to pick off their prey. And they dive in, biting and clawing. The crowd breaks apart and charges away from them in a mad dash, but more keep emerging from hiding spots. I cannot count how many there are, but while the humans outnumber the Wendigos, their self-control was already draining away. I spot one creature being killed messily with a sword. The spray catches three faces with mouths open in fright or ferocity, including the man holding the blade. It is the sight and smell of this blood. The infection it bears, and the certainty of barbarism it brings, that drives the assembled crowd over the edge. I am powerless up on my roof. The savage is released. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fights O'er the ramparts we watched Were so gallantly streaming And the rocket's red glare The bombs bursting in air Gave proof Star-spangled banner yet wave O'er the land of the free And the home of the brave You have been listening to episode 18 of Arlington Remastered. The Speaker. Written, edited, and directed by Alexander Shaw. Frederick Douglass, performed by Paris Lilly. Thomas Arlington and Raven, performed by Alex Shaw. Major Frank Butler, performed by Spencer Lieb. Sarah Arlington, performed by Maureen Foley. And Sergeant Arnold Powell, performed by Jesse Ferguson. Fanfare for Space and Tenebrous Brothers Carnival, 
performed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Make Your Decision by Dan Philipson of Shockwave Sound. Many Soundscapes by Tabletop Audio. And The Star-Spangled Banner, performed by Chase Holfelder. And if you aren't listening to Through the Wind Door, the incredibly in-depth New Century Multiverse fancast, then you need to subscribe today and let the hosts Greg Downing and Toby Jungius take you deep into various interpretations, readings and deconstructions of each New Century book in turn. And these are released each week along with fascinating interviews with the cast and first impressions of every new book. And Panther Soul, the sequel to Tiger's Eye, is now available on Amazon.com in beautiful paperback form. And if you're on our Patreon at the $10 level or higher, then access to the ebook version is part of the bonus package you receive. The New Century Multiverse is funded by Patreon. Our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you too. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Outridge, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Evan Jankowski, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Kat Esman, Kevin Vey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksh, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. <laughs>